The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. And for some reason, I feel a special desire because our talk is on effort to thank both Aaron, our uh, recorder, and Maureen, who, Maureen uh, who has been doing the management of this evening for a very long time. So it's something to really realize the center operates totally on volunteer basis. Everything pretty much is done by volunteers. So I just wanted to give a little note of that for their right effort, good effort for a very long time. Thank you. Um, now, when you heard that little reading I did, I wanted to do that because I think it's, it just gives you an idea of how the teachings were originally transmitted, more than likely. We aren't really sure of this because this little excerpt is from one of the suttas. The suttas are the teachings. And um, it was not for hundreds of years after the Buddha's death. He lived about 2,500 years ago. So it wasn't until several hundred years after his death that anything was written down. So it was pretty much word of mouth until that time. So we often will start any kind of statement around the suttas, the teachings, or something we understand the Buddha said or transmitted in um, teachings. It is said that. It is said this. It is said that. And that's why. Because nothing was written during his time. So how many of you came last time for the uh, talk on, brief talk on the faculties, I know, and then the talk on confidence or faith? Ooh, not too many people. Well, this is actually one of a series that I'm doing this evening, and it's a series on the five faculties. The fact that the Buddha was very big on lists. He's a real list maker. And so it's said, and so the factors are those special mental qualities that aid in the um, enlightenment, in the uh, freeing of, from clinging of individuals. So these faculties are first uh, faith or confidence. Faith can sometimes have a little bit of an issue for people. Faith, confidence, same, similar thing. Effort. Mindfulness, um, excuse me, (laughs) concentration, and lastly, wisdom. So our talk this evening is on effort. We could say right effort. There's a lot of rights also in these lists. I prefer actually to use either the word wise or skillful. Well, what makes something wise or skillful? Obviously, it has very much to do with what it is that you want to have happen as a result of whatever it is that you're doing. And in this case, almost all of the teachings are toward liberation. What's liberation? Enlightenment. What's enlightenment? These are all words we throw around. But more than anything else, it's freedom from suffering. To be able to have freedom from suffering in our lives. And we all know what that is. But many of us don't have too much of a way of how do we get out of this. And the teachings are almost always pointing to ways to cease suffering in our lives. So confidence or faith, the first one, which was last week. Um, let's, give us, let's have an example here. So we're um, the pilot 
who was going to Charlotte, North Carolina this morning from LaGuardia Airport. And oftentimes birds, I guess, fly into airplanes from what I understand. Luckily, whoever this pilot was must have had one whole heck of a lot of confidence or faith in his ability to do or her. I'm not sure. Maybe it was a female. Uh, This pilot must have had a good deal of confidence or faith in doing what they were doing. They had to have had a sense of effort, skillful effort, to make this happen. I don't know, maybe some of you don't know, but this, this plane was heading toward Charlotte from LaGuardia, going over the Bronx, and all of a sudden a bird flew into the wing, and the pilot landed the plane on the Hudson River. And my understanding is everyone was saved. So that's quite, a, quite an experience, I'm sure, for all involved. So the third, then, in this case would be, so we have, we have faith or confidence. The confidence you can do something. Effort, skillful effort in doing it. Mindfulness, you would certainly have to be mindful in a case like that, and really paying attention with every element of the banking of this airplane. I have no idea of all the details, but I'm sure there were plenty. Concentration, con- con- you can imagine the concentration needed to make sure this sees the Hudson River and bringing it down where it needed to be. And then, of course, the wisdom. There had to have been a lot of, I think, wisdom and experience with this circumstance. So these are the faculties. These are the things that are very, very important for us to be working at. And uh, we can certainly have lots of possible effort in um, improving or in moving toward uh, the faculties and having them be part of our mind states. So, as I said, he was an inveterate list maker, and it said that effort was talked about more than any of the other teachings whatsoever. Wise effort is on the following list, the five faculties, which is what we're studying over this five-week period. Wise effort is one of the seven factors of enlightenment, one portion of the Noble Eightfold Path, one of the ten paramis, or perfections, one of the five powers, and, of course, effort is all one of all of the four right efforts, which we'll be speaking about tonight. So effort is crucial more than anything else, would seem to me, because we need to do our own enlightenment, our own uh, freedom from suffering. Nobody else is going to do this for us. So effort has to be part of this, right? It has to be something that comes from within us that we can make happen. So it's a very important thing to know more about. Um, Maybe in starting out thinking about effort as you do this on your own, you might want to think about how did effort play out in your life? And I can give you a few examples for me. I was born in Chicago, raised in a family as the third, the youngest of three children, and uh, grandfather lived in our house, who was um, kind of the father without really being the father. He was kind of in charge, even though my father was there. And he was this older kind of sage person, I guess you'd say. At least he thought he was. But he certainly favored my sister beyond my, sis- my sister middle person between my brother and myself. She was his favorite for sure. But I was forever making effort to get some kind of love or attention from this rather stoical, unhappy person whose wife had died at 38 of TB. And 
So it's always not just effort, but striving and striving to try to get what was never going to really come to me. Chicago's motto, the city of Chicago has this motto called I will. And I remember as a child, you know, this was a big thing in school. We'd talk about the motto of our city and there was all this energy. You've probably heard a lot about Chicago recently. It is quite a city. You know, the dailies have run the city for almost my entire life and I'm 65 years old. So with very few exceptions, I think about 15 years, a daily or one daily or another has not run the city of Chicago. But anyway, I will. So there was all this, you know, do the best you can. You know, all these kinds of messages about effort, which really were much more toward the emphasis toward striving versus effort. It was a little bit like too much, you know, a little bit too much cling, too much kind of angst really over being able to do what I thought would be the right thing to do. And that really is not the type of effort we're talking about here. In this sense, we're talking about effort, which really does not have a goal per se. It's more a goal of letting go, really seeing what life, what, what is happening right here and right now. How can I accept this? Are there things I can do about this? Are there things I can't do about this? That would be like right effort in relationship to our world. And it wouldn't be something where we're in an in essence of lots of goals and lots of striving. It's more like letting things be. On Sunday, I lost my purse. It was a big deal. And um, about an hour later, my husband lost his wallet. Now, I knew I lost my purse in the house because I knew I had done something with it. and We were going on this bike ride. So I was preparing for the bike ride and took my cell phone out of the purse. So I knew it was at home. It wasn't like, you know, someplace else, like a gas station that I had just been to. It definitely made it all the way home. So I put the cell phone in the bike bag and... Then we took the ride, and all of a sudden, I didn't have my pur- my my little. It's just a little purse, little wallet purse. And so when I got back, I sure I was sure it would be there. And I get home, and it's not there. And about 30 minutes later, we need to welcome the um, community group. We have community groups at the Sangha here, and there are two of them that are meeting Each, once a month. We meet in San Mateo, our city. And there's about seven or eight of us. So I had to drop this incredible angst about this wallet. Where is it in the house? I had already combed for about 30 minutes looking for it. And just decide, am I going to just get all freaked out about this? I'm going to tell everybody to go home. Or am I going to just enjoy this evening with the people and realize the wallet will sometime somehow be found? So, in fact, I even was able to go to bed without trying to find it anymore. But the next morning, it was really troubling me greatly, and I looked at everything three or four times, seeing if I can find this thing. We're really moving much more towards striving instead of right effort. But um, it's, it's nowhere to be found, and yet I know it's in the house. And usually I call my cell phone, and I can find it. <laughs> but this time, of course, my cell phone was in the bike bag, so there was no possibility for finding it in that, in that, by that means. So two days went by. And I realized I was going to have to make some phone calls, call the uh, various you know, charge companies and get the library card and all these various things. And um, I opened up the mail, and there was this one piece of mail which had my name in the uh, return side misspelled and a lot of kind of, let's say, not very well-written uh, 
return address, and then there were two stamps going sideways on this piece of mail, and it was sort of bulky. I thought, whoa, this must be what's left of what was in my wallet. And um, so I opened it up, and sure enough, everything was there except the money and, um, and the wallet itself. But what I realized was, more than likely, I was probably right that some kids who were kind of riding their scooters back and forth may have actually taken it. So there's all kinds of things that flood into your mind at a time like that, right? I mean, we've all had experiences something like this. So what's really going to be the right thing to do? Well, I was fairly happy that I did a few right things. I was able to enjoy the evening with friends. I was able to sleep well that night. I started to, you know, put my life back together with all these various things. That's certainly an example of of doing something that would eventually work out. And then I realized, how do I really feel about these kids? You know, did they do it? Did they not do it? And I realized that one way or the other, whether they did it or didn't didn't do it, didn't matter nearly as much, not nearly as much as what my spirit was around them, you know, how I was feeling about them, whether they did it or not, whether I should tell their parents or ask their parents. or It was much more what was happening inside of me. And that's what skillful, mindful effort really has to do with, is what's going on inside of you that enables you to act in a skillful way. So I've just made a, frankly, I met like two or three people in the, in the, in the, uh, in the various credit card companies because they were just wonderful. I had this, this, um, this gift card that a friend of mine who had died had given me. And, you know, when gift cards go away, when you lose a gift card, it's supposed to be toast. That's the end of it. And this woman, you know, did a major headstand. She found out how she could find out about the, the card, and then somehow she was able to resurrect. In fact, I knew the amount that was on the card but I didn't know the exact number, and she made all of this happen. And she said, she said to me when it was over, I said, well, you know, here's what happened, and this was a friend of mine who had died, and I only used $100 of this card, and every time I use something, I buy something with this card, I think of him in a, in a lovely, either buy or use something that I have bought with it, I think something lovingly about him. And she says, God, you've really made my day. <laughs> she was so happy that I was happy that she had helped me. So it's just this wonderful little exchange of energy and effort on both sides, really, to um, do the right thing. So that was really great. Um, so effort isn't all by itself. It actually, of course, requires energy. And there's a certain amount of energy enabled to enable to complete the task. It can also be fueled. Effort could be wise effort. Effort could be unwise effort. It could be fueled by positive things, like the um, heavenly abodes, you know, metta, loving kindness, um, lots of positive things like that. Or it could be fueled by hatred, aversion, anger. So just depending upon what it is, um, it might make a big difference. Um, energy that's used in wise effort would always, always be wholesome, wholesome energies. Always wholesome energies. Um, so we're talking about wholesome, but there's also unwholesome. And if you noticed in this talk, in this uh, little segment from the Buddha, he was talking about different states, different states of the mind. And uh, uh, when he did that, 
he was talking really, when he talked about the unwholesome states, he was talking about the defilements. Defilements are those things which thoughts, emotions, different elements that um, create suffering, quite frankly. Some of the defilements are sensual desire. By the way, there's nothing wrong with that desire. It just depends how much and in what effort and you know what's going on. But, but sensual desire can be something that causes difficulties or be a hindrance to our um, lack of suffering. The second one is aversion or ill will or hatred. The third one is sloth, torpor, tiredness. The fourth one is um, um, restlessness and anxiety. And the fifth one is, uh, let me think for a moment here. The fifth hindrance is doubt. Doubt. Kind of, if you came to the talk last week, you realize that the opposite of doubt would, of course, be confidence. Kind of, they kind of work with one another. So, how do we know what to do with these, with this this effort situation, and how to make it skillful effort? Well, there are the four great endeavors, as they're called, which is what was mentioned in this this part that I read to you here, and. I created a little acronym called CALM, C-A-L-M. So what we, do, what we do to have skillful effort is, first of all, we curb unwholesome states before they arise, unwholesome states being those five hindrances I was telling you about. We, A, abandon unwholesome states that have arisen. Third, we, L, we launch wholesome states that have not yet arisen, and fourth, we maintain wholesome states that have arisen. So there's four different things to do. The states are either, our state of mind is either wholesome or unwholesome, depending upon if it has all these defilements that I mentioned, and it's also going to either be arisen or unarisen. So let's give an example of this from our meditation. So we're, we're meditating, and Well, you know, this cushion really doesn't work. This cushion is, is, there's something wrong with the way this meets the, you know, my upper part of my leg. I'm, it just doesn't feel right. And furthermore, this is, this cushion here, the zabaton seems very thick. I wish it were a lot thinner. This makes some noise when I rub against it. You know, sensual desire. So things in our senses are in some way creating a hindrance to our relaxation or our calm. Second, so our sense desires can have to do with our meditation. Second, aversion. You know, I can't believe it that when I talked to my boss today, all they could do was just, they couldn't listen to me. All they had to do was listen, but no, no, couldn't listen. Tomorrow I'm going to, so we go into this, maybe a spin, right? We're meditating, we're following our breath, but no, we're actually in a spin of some kind. So that would be another form of, of a defilement or an aversion. Third might be, okay, so we're doing our meditation and everything is going well. And all of a sudden, you know, this 
you know, this kind of the dunking bird. Remember that? I don't know how many of you are old enough to remember the dunking bird, but <laughs> even Gil does this. So, you know, it's, it's kind of fun. I remember one of the first all days I ever went to with him and he did one of these and I was like shocked. I thought, wow, our teacher even does that. It really normalized the whole situation for me <laughs> that he was able to have drowsiness. You know, anybody can. We're all human beings. So drowsiness, sloth and torpor, those are all pretty much the same thing. What's the opposite of that? And this is my favorite choice. It's just this fidgety kind of anxious energy or worry or, gee, you know, what about my wallet or whatever it happens to be, just spinning off in some kind of a way or another. And then lastly, everything is fine. You've just dealt with all those things. All is well. You know, if I think one more thing without being able to remain on my breath, I will know that I better go try Sufi dancing. This meditation thing just doesn't work. So we have a doubt. We have doubts about the path, about what it is that we're doing. Now, this doesn't have to be about meditation, but I just wanted to give you an example of kind of, I'm sure most of you can relate to some of what I'm talking about here in one way or another, about these aversive things that happen, whether it's ill will or sloth and torpor or restlessness or doubt or uh, some kind of a desire to, you know, go to the refrigerator when you're really wanting to be meditating. Um, getting back to the wallet thing, I could use that as an example as well because lots of very unwholesome mind states can come as a result of an issue like that. Uh, one thing that could happen is you could become very hypervigilant. You could get to not trust people. You could think this world is a very unsafe place. I could know that those neighbors are the ones that did it. And actually, I don't know at all that the neighbors, I have no idea, really. I could just spin for you know hours about what, what might have happened there. You know, What really did get to the, I've got to get to the bottom of this. Worry. So many things can kind of get us spun up around one simple little incident. And what happens to our... Uh, clinging, our freedom from suffering, it pretty much, you know, is out the window. And is that worth it? You know, is that worth it? I really don't think so. So, um, usually these hindrances that we talk about to um, skillful effort come from an object an object in our life, a mind object that comes up. So if it's something that's like an attractive object, it will usually spin off into desire. If it's something that's unattractive or something that we don't care for, it'll usually spin off into aversion or dislike. And if it's sort of a nondescript thing, doesn't have one way or the other, it will often go into one of those other three um, mind states of either restlessness, um, confusion, tiredness, Doubt. So each one of those aversive things relates to, you know, what type of state this is, whether it's one that's one that we like, one that we don't like, or one that just doesn't have too much charge to it at all. Tan Jeff, who's one of our one of the monks, uh, who is a very prolific writer and who 
comes here somewhat regularly. He'll be here in May, the first weekend in May, and he'll be speaking about um, not self. So that should be an interesting day. He actually has a monastery down in uh, near Escondido, near San, San Diego, Meta Forest Monastery. So he lists out here some very interesting things that are not worthy, that are not worth attending to, not worth using our faculties for. Was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having been what? What was I, what was I in the past? Shall I be in the future? Shall I not be in the future? What shall I be in the future? Sh- <laughs> How shall I be in the future? Having been what? What shall I be in the future? Or else he is inwardly perplexed about the immediate present. Am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Have you ever done some of these things? You know, think, gee, where am I from? You know, and what did I have past lives? And on and on. We can get into some pretty heady things, but they're not necessarily really going to help relieve our suffer, help help to release us from suffering. So then he goes on and says, as he attends inappropriately in this way, one of six kinds of view arises in him. The view I have a self arises in him as true and established. Or the view, I have no self. Or the view, it is precisely by means of self that I perceive self. Or the view, it is precisely by the means of self that I perceive not self. Or the view, it is, it is precisely by the means of not self that I perceive self arises in him as true and established, or else he has a view like this. This very self of mine, the knower that is sensitive here and there to the ripening of good and bad actions, is the self of mine that is constant, everlasting, eternal, not subject to change, and will endure as long as eternity. This is called a thicket of views, a wilderness of views, a contortion of views, a writhing of views, a fetter or a chain of views. So right effort or wise effort would not be to get into lots of philosophical you know, ruminations within. They would, it would usually create kind of a, a spin that is really not going to be very valuable in, in helping with any of the suffering or clinging that we have in our lives. In general, first the mind will perceive an object, and then it will look at it and identify it, see what it is, and at that point we really have the ability to make a decision, are we going to pick up on this or not pick up on this? We're in our meditation. Are we going to pick up on this train of thought or are we going to let it go? And one of my very, very favorite passages talks about this in really eloquent detail. A desire arises in the mind. It is satisfied. Immediately another comes. In the interval which separates two desires, A perfect calm reigns in the mind. It is at this moment freed from all thought, love, or hate. Complete peace equally reigns between two mental waves. That's by Swami Sivananda. And then Eknathashwaran, who wrote the commentary on these little quotes, said, Through meditation and the enthusiastic observance of disciplines such as slowing down, and keeping the mind one-pointed, we can learn to do something that sounds impossible. When thoughts are tailgating each other, 
we can slip into the flow of mental traffic, separate thoughts that have locked bumpers, and slowly squeeze ourselves in between. It sounds terribly daring, the kind of stunt for which professionals in the movies are paid in many figures. Yet most of us critically underestimate our strength. We can learn to step right in front of the onrushing emotional impulses, such as fury, and little by little, inch by hard one inch, start pushing them apart. This takes a lot of solid muscle in the form of willpower, but just as with muscles, we can build up willpower with good old-fashioned practice. Once you can do this, you will find that there is not the slightest connection between another person's provocation and your response. There seemed to be a connection because your perceptions were crowding together. Now that those thoughts have been separated, even for a hair's breadth, your response has lost its compulsive force. Quite frankly to me, that is one of the main things about meditation that appeals to me, is the ability to practice and have the ability to have that space between the thoughts, between the onrushing things coming at us, so that that point of choice, that we don't have to knee-jerk in some way react. There's a wonderful difference, really. If you think of the word react or the word respond, react is kind of like, ah, and respond is, what's needed here? What's needed here? It's a very different thing to react or to respond. And meditation, following the breath, you can follow it forever, but if you're off the cushion, you don't see this wonderful jewel of being able to get between those thoughts and between those um, emotions and things that are happening. You know, you, you've really missed a lot in terms of the value for the practice. So it's something that I just think is, is very, very useful to think about. And it has certainly helped me. Um, when I first began meditation, our teacher said something that really impressed me, which was the formal practice is everything that's on the cushion, and the informal practice is the rest of your life. So that you're really never not practicing. And that, that important space that we're able to create and able to more um, uh, have more freedom in comes very often from meditation. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So, um, we've talked a little bit about curbing the unmindful, excuse me, the unwholesome states before they arise. Now I'd like to combine two of the other um, states. A, abandon unwholesome thought states before they, um, that have not arisen, and launch wholesome states before they've arisen. We'll combine those two in our meditation practice. Each one of the hindrances has a remedy, something that, like a prescription that we can do for it or an antidote for the issue. So we'll start with the first, desire. Once again, we don't want to think that desire is something that's wrong. Desire can be a beautiful quality, really. But desire that's kind of fueled by uh, greed and, and other types of features like that is, is where the problem comes in. Um, desire on the cushion, let's say a desire comes up, as I gave that example earlier this evening, it could be very useful to meditate on impermanence, the impermanence of sensations, 
the impermanence of what's going on in your life, the impermanence of relationships, the impermanence of you in particular as a human being on this planet, the impermanence of just about anything. Because our desires have this tendency to feel like they're going to be there forever. You know, they're going to be the things that are going to be there forever for us. And that is pretty much an illusion and just not really going to happen. Um, Ill will. Meditating on loving kindness can be very, very useful. Have any of you done any loving kindness or metta practice? Yeah. Um, I can give you an, an example of, of how this worked for me. We often will have like metta all days or a couple of hours, maybe a, a class in metta or loving kindness. And it's a form of meditation where we affirm um, the we affirm that you will be well, that those around you will be well, that your enemies will be well, that your enemies will be happy, that you will be happy, healthy, free and uh, free from uh, suffering, that type of thing. So it's, it's an affirmative practice versus following our breath. Um, I had a real thing with BMWs, and um, I don't know if any of you drive one, but I noticed I had a rather long commute down 280, and I was very sure that all the crazy drivers drove BMWs, you know, the ultimate driving machine. This was my held belief. And it caused a lot of suffering, actually, because, boy, I'd see, I'd be driving along, you know, 280 isn't that crowded, but I'd be driving along, of course, they come whizzing around me, you know, or else a motorcycle. And um, one day, after a met, actually, after a, a, a um, meta retreat here, an all-day meta retreat, I made the decision that instead of getting into this mode of freak out and I can't believe they would do this to me. You know, don't they realize, you know, this is unsafe. Is there lane splitting or whatever the issue is? And I made a decision to spread and to give meta to this driver or this biker, whatever it happened to be. And from that day to this, it's been really amazing. My driving is much, has much more ease to it and it took some while. It took a little while to practice, and every now and then I'll, I'll do a backslide. But mostly, every time I see somebody who is driving in some kind of a crazy way, whether it's affecting me or they're just doing something, it's let's say two lanes over or something, I will just say, "May you be safe. May you be well. May you be free from suffering." And obviously, when somebody is driving like that, you know, cat and mouse or some silly, you know, road game or something. That's really what we want for them. We want them to be safe. We want everybody around them to be safe. So it's um, it's really a lovely, lovely practice and something that can be used and transform ill will or aversion, irritation with others in a in a very profound way and really quite quickly. I was pretty amazed by how fast it was that I was able to to do it. As I said, I, there's an occasional black backslide here, but not very often. Let's see, I'm, I'm able to stay with that. It's very, very useful. So dullness and drowsiness in our meditation, another one of the hindrances. We can um, open our eyes. We can do a brisk walk, another possibility. We can visualize kind of a bright light in front of us. Um, those are usually some of the things, but even just opening your eyes versus having them closed and maybe kind of, um, uh, concentrating on a spot on the floor just in front of you in a little way so, so you're not looking around the room too much because that can sometimes be too much. Standing up 
is another way to deal with drowsiness. Sometimes on our all days here, people stand up after lunch because lunch can be kind of a logy time. And so people stand and it's very hard to fall asleep standing up. <laughs> um, restless and worry. Um, anxiousness. Turning the mind to an object that has a tendency to calm it. So just noting the breathing, noting the in and out, noting if it's ragged, if it needs to be smoothed out a bit, if it's kind of long, labored, if it's too short, if there's kind of a very short in, out, in, out, maybe adding a little more to it. And that's not to make it a staged thing, but more to just ease up on the breath as it is now. So oftentimes an anxious breath will be somewhat shallow and somewhat fast, you know, and just even evening it out a bit can be very, very useful in calming down the mind. Um, Ajahn Amaro, another one of our teachers, once said that what he does, and this seems to work for him, is he'll just instruct the um, the restless thing or whatever is kind of recurring in his mind as an anxious thing. He'll just say, not now. Just letting this diversion know this isn't the time for it, you know, and then come back to the breath. So that can be useful sometimes. Um, the fifth hindrance, doubt. I think... One way for sure is to realize that anything, let's say you hear a talk or you read something, um, if it doesn't resonate for you, just let it go. Don't dwell on something that is not working for you or something that you can't relate to. You don't have to, you know, take it on and make a big deal out of it. Now, that's not to say that if you want to investigate it, that that's a problem. That's not a problem at all. But if it ends up being one thing out of 20 things, let's say about Buddhist teachings that are an issue for you, I don't think I would scrap the whole thing off of, you know, one issue that you might have and um, or create a whole lot of doubt around that um, because that certainly can can happen sometimes. I think spiritual friends are really important. It's said that the Buddha was once asked, what's the most important, the Buddha or the fact that there have been enlightened individuals, the Dharma, the teachings or the Sangha? At that time, by the way, the Sangha meant the monks. That's why in most of the teachings you'll hear monks this, monks that, because he was talking to the monastics. Um, And he said the Sangha, the uh, community of monks, was more important than either the teachings or the the fact that someone has been awakened or enlightened, Um, which I thought was pretty interesting. It gives gives a whole lot of uh, weight to spending time with those who are on a similar, you know, have a similar way of, of, of what they value in life and what they're wanting to have for their life as you do. So it can be very useful to have spiritual friends. Um, coming here on a, you know, for potlucks, things like that, or coming here for discussion groups that we have, coming to Mariana's event on Saturday. Lots of good things happen here besides just the meditation thing. Um, that we do, which is very important, but there are a lot of ways to acquire and cultivate spiritual friends as well, and that can be very, very helpful in our practice. Um, the informal practice. I find when doubt comes up, all I have to do is see what's come for me off the cushion and kind of review some of those things, and it just, any doubt that I would have is very fast removed. Um, every now and then Jeff, my husband, and I will get into one of these kind of a back and forth things that's sort of like a, it's almost like a script, you know, with your partner. 
you say this and they say this and you say this and they say this. And so you get into this kind of a ping pong match. And before meditation, I never would have done what I now do fairly regularly when this happens. Almost every time I'll just say, you know, I know this is going nowhere right now. So why don't we just stop? Because I know there's not going to be a, a good communication back and forth. It's just this sort of a little thing that happens between us. And it's simply not worth it. So um, that can be very useful as well. The last thing is maintaining the wholesome states that have arisen. That sounds really good. <laughs> and um, I would say the main thing about that is that is to watch about clinging clinging to these things that happen. You know, we might have some very special um, pyrotechnics or wonderful things that go on in our meditation, and we have this tendency to kind of cling or get kind of clutchy around them, and that usually sends them off running, (laughs) much more so than just letting things be as they are at this moment. So clinging to wholesome states or states of of real relaxation or peace can uh, sometimes make us... Uh, disappointed and spending, you know, six months trying to get back to that exact same thing that happened on that cushion, you know, six months ago or something can create quite a bit of suffering. More than anything else, though, it's important to know on or off the cushion when we are in a wholesome state, when these hindrances are missing, when we're not in aversion or excessive desire or sloth and torpor or doubt or whatever. So really knowing that we are in a place of right or wise effort can be very, very useful. So what I wish for you, for all of us really, is this place where the uh, spaces are more and more noted and more and more useful in our doing what is that, that really keeps us as free from suffering along with those around us as free from suffering as we can. So thank you very much. Are there any questions? About effort. Or comments? Somebody? Anybody want to say anything about any of their hindrances? I appreciate your story about the man on 280. Ah. It, I guess she wants you to say that in the mic. Um, I was just saying that I appreciated your story about the meta on 280. I've used meta for In fact, Gil specifically suggested it to me uh, within the last couple of months. Um, I can't even remember what the difficulty was. Oh, I know. I was at um, I was at a retreat, mm-hmm. and I told Gil um, during one of our interviews that I couldn't imagine how many judgments I was having. <laughs> Everybody around me is saying, on absolutely no basis, these were 95 percent people I didn't know at all. I was making my judgments based on the way they walk, the what they were wearing, and nobody was very out of line. <laughs> And he said, this is not a very unusual thing to happen in a retreat, right. although it not, had not happened to me before. And he said, uh, try a little meta 
when you notice that in yeah. regard to a particular person. Right. So it reminded me of that, and I found that very, very helpful. Because basically what the meta did, I, I don't presume it did any good for the other person, but it, it took that judgment away, which is really suffering. And uh, so I, exactly. I appreciated your bringing it back to mind to me. Yeah. It's really, I mean, I can't believe how, how much, how well it's worked for me. I... When I was working at Foothill, I worked with somebody who I was on the lower level and this person was on the upper level. So I'd have regular meetings with them because I was reporting to them for a period of time. And no matter what time of day or what day of the week, this person would be late, 10 to 15 minutes to every single meeting we had. And at first it was really sort of frosting me. You know, don't, you know, all this kind of aversion came up and irritation. Don't they realize I'm busy too, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so I'd get into this thing. And then I made a decision, I'll just do the metta sutta on my way up to the meeting. And so it took about 10 or 15 minutes. And by the time I got up there, um, it was gone. It was, and I sat there and I would continue doing it there as well. And it really didn't matter. It really did not matter. It's just a way of really bringing us back. So I can't tell you how useful it's been for me. And if you think about it, the, the main thing also is, like you say, you really do want the best for these people who are driving a little bit on the crazy side. You know, <laughs> you don't want them to be hurt or to hurt anybody else. So it's 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 absolutely what our wish is that they will be safe. You know, and those around them will be safe. So it really does it does mean something. And all this craziness about BMWs. I mean, if we look at some of our views, they're just incredible. You know, they're they're very humbling. <laughs> at least mine are. You know, so many of them um, are really really humbling. Thank you. Any other comments or questions? No? <laughs> okay, but you look like you might be. No? I can't. <laughs> ah, see? I had this funny little feeling. <laughs> I think people are probably tired of hearing from me every Thursday. but Oh, well, I haven't heard from you. I just wanted to say I really appreciate your distinguishing effort as not a striving, right. but a letting go. Yeah. That was that was really hard for me to learn. And I think yeah. sometimes it, it still is hard to yes. remember that when I'm sitting down in meditation, mm-hmm. just following the breath, it's not about making something happen to get rid of a pain. It's not about getting somewhere so that I'm enlightened the next day <laughs> right. or that I can tell somebody, hey, look what I know. Right. Um, that's, that's hard for me sometimes. Yeah. You know, that whole break praise blame cycle mm-hmm. I mean I see it come up so often in meditation as mm-hmm. I do in life but as you said those spaces in between your thoughts you notice them a lot more when you're sitting in quiet mm-hmm. so I do appreciate that distinguishing thing. yeah I think it's very useful it also can be very useful as we're studying effort and it doesn't take that much effort to think about what how has effort appeared in your life you know and for me it was really big because my parents would say, just do the best you can. Well, you know, when you think about best, all you can think about is, you know, just really doing something terrific instead of, you know, enjoy what you're doing or something like that. You know, so do the best you can. I mean, so I was quite a striver and I still have that element in me. So I know. And so in preparing for this kind of thinking about how effort has appeared in my life and why, both in, in a response to reaction, really, to a grandfather who was a pretty punitive guy, you know, and not very easy to be around. 
and was very hard to please. So it's like trying to please those that will never be pleased. I mean, talk about an effort that is never going <laughs> to do anything but cause suffering. There's one for you. So, yeah, it's, it's quite amazing. Um, and just that space, that space between the breaths, which eventually just, you know, just following your breath is not what this practice is really. That's, that's only one small part. It kind of goes, that's the beginning and it kind of goes from there. What you can do with the mental discipline or the mental um, capability that comes from meditating, you know, and seeing those spaces and seeing those places where you have a decision that you can make. You know, Jeff, I think we can forget, let's just not get into it right now, you know, or whatever it is, or get all freaked out about losing my purse and not even be able to enjoy my friends coming that night, you know. And at first, I, I, I told them all, so sometimes you need to express it so people at least know what's going on. And, you know, people were very nice about it. And I said, but I'd really like to drop it. You know, I've lost it and I just, I'll find it and let's not worry about it. But we have to, it's not like, it's not like sugar, sugar coating things. It's, it's recognizing them and being honest about them, but not letting them, you know, be dragged down, I think, more than anything. Or be something that's, that ends up really creating suffering. Which is what uh, non-enlightenment is about. <laughs> suffering. Anybody else? Yes. Let's see if I can operate this thing. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, so something clicked. Thank you for your talk. Uh, something clicked in my head uh, during your talk, and it was interesting. Um, I sort of uh, I've been playing around around with caffeine. Well, maybe let me give you a backdrop. Like five years ago, I was probably drinking like five lattes a day, um, and I and I've oh. tried to like sort of gradually cut down. Caffeinated. Yeah, yeah. Wow. What, what other kind of... Oh, wait, latte, right. Well, I, I always have decaf cappuccino. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not good on caffeine, I'll tell you. Well, I think I'm realizing I'm not good on caffeine, too. Yeah. Uh, during the last retreat uh, I, I did uh, back in August, I had a headache for two straight days because I decided wow. to just not, you know, you know, and that's a lot less than, than five. That was like, that's like a cup of coffee or two cups of coffee a day. Mm-hmm. But I've been sort of tying in uh, caffeine with, with right effort, and it clicked in. Or something just makes me get really, really engaged and do good work, when, you know, when I have caffeine, right? But I've noticed that it's actually, it's a, it's a limitation for right effort because I lose the anchor that, that gives me the, the presence. And I'm just, I'm just wondering if anybody has, has noticed that. Uh, I've been trying to, so I had my first cup of coffee since December today, and I got a crap ton of work done, but I, I looked back, <laughs> and it was like 6 o'clock, and, uh, oh. and, and I thought, what happened to the day? Yeah. So uh, I was just wondering if anyone else has noticed that. When I'm on caffeine, I have quite an energy level in general. And caffeine, and I just don't make it. You know, I mean, I can just really get really spun up, and it just kind of makes me fluttery, makes my heart sort of flutter. So I wouldn't be the one. Is there anybody else that has any comment about caffeine? <laughs> there you go. An endorsement for caffeine. Yeah, it's interesting because I can get stuff done, but I don't feel like that's necessarily right effort because I totally lose sort of context of what's of 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 my overall presence and sort of the, hmm. the things the details that go on throughout the day it's kind of interesting goes into sort of a drivenness or something yeah, almost yeah. or a, like yeah, yeah. interesting okay. were you going to say something there's somebody else had their hand up i thought could you give her the they really like oh here's here we go 
Yeah. Really? Quitting that right now in cigarettes. And yeah, I can. Wow. Any time of the day. And I, I miss it, but, but I agree about the presence. You can turn your microphone on. Oh, how do I do that? A blue light. It's green now. There you go. Okay. Now it's fine. Yeah, I, I noticed that I wasn't quite as present, and um, and I'm always caught in that desire, however subtle, and I mm-hmm. always give in to it. And for me, that's just. Maybe because I'm so addictive, but it's kind of, I just am working on letting it go and and trying to remember all these talks and the words about cravings and mm-hmm. attachments and desires. and yeah. So it's, it's a struggle. That's impressive. You're working with both of them at the same time? Because they go together for me, and it's, okay. it's the same, That's... I think, neuropathways or something. They're both, uh-huh. you know, they give a little hit, a little wake up. That's impressive. Good luck with it. Thank you. I will need it. (laughs) I was smoking until my uh, early 30s, and my final smoking pal uh, was a good friend of mine, and thank heaven she finally quit, because I only smoked with her for the last smoking I did for the last six months or so. And then when she quit, that was it. I finally quit. But it's not easy, you know, and what these things represent for us. and any of these, you know, whether it be desire or whether it be drowsiness or any of these things, we have to look at them sort of carefully. We don't want to just automatically leap to, oh, I'm drowsy now, there's something wrong with me. You may, in fact, need to rest. So that's what right effort is about. It's knowing when you need to rest. It's knowing, you know, what what's really called for. So we, we can't, we don't want to, this, the whole idea of this was not to say, okay, we should never you know, we should never be drowsy. We should never be worried. I mean, there's sometimes reasons <laughs> that we worry may take us into another place, you know, but we don't want to get stuck in any of them, that's for sure, or have them be so repetitive or perhaps kind of automatic or, or create suffering. But um, there's times, like on retreats especially, the teachers, every retreat I've ever been on, the teachers talk about the importance of realizing that the first residential retreat I'm talking about here, the first day or two, you know, drowsiness is really common because we're on such a momentum from our regular life that then when we sit, you know, we are in place and not, you know, earphones and, and um, you know, blackberries and everything else that goes with it and our work and all the energy stuff that happens um, that can get very frenetic, uh, we can get quite tired. So that's sleep might very much be what's called for. So all of these things, that's, that's really important to realize that right effort relates to, um, or wise effort, as I said, I prefer to say wise, um, refers to really looking at what's going on and, and um, making some good decisions based upon what comes when you really look at it in an honest way. Anything else? Because we're just about out Well, good luck in finding those spaces and enjoying those spaces and using them for relief of suffering. It's about the best thing I could offer and hope for you and me, all of us. Thanks.